Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very uh, incredible story. You know, we have a founder that he's going to be telling us about building, scaling, financing, you know, all types of financings, you know, also, you know, like the craziness on how he got started with the business. But I think that you're all going to be very much inspired with his journey. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, David Pinino. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. So let's do a little of a walk through memory lane. So tell us about life growing up. Sure, sure. So uh, I grew up uh, down the road from you in Norwalk, Connecticut, and uh, went to local public high school there in Norwalk, Connecticut, and uh, ended up going to college out in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Franklin and Marshall, and and then started my career right there in Connecticut with Gartner um, in Stanford, Connecticut. You know, I think that is very interesting, and and this happens, you know, around the U.S. I mean, obviously in Spain, you know, where I'm originally from, you know, you stay with your parents until you're like 35 and you get married. But here, typically, <laughs> uh, in the U.S., you know, when people go to college, they just leave, you know, and they go perhaps to other states and in other areas. One thing that I've uh, experienced in Connecticut is that people come back, and that was your, you know, case as well. So why is that the case? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, Connecticut has a uh, incredible talent pool. Uh, you know, your, your proximity to Boston, New York, you know, Philadelphia, DC. Um, and also, you know, frankly, as a family person, your proximity to beaches and mountains to go skiing. And, and then, you know, I've, I've run international for, for Gartner. I've done a bunch of different things and your, your ability to jump from New York to London, you know, Paris, uh, uh, you know, Asia, LA, wherever it may be. It's just an unbelievable hub for not only talent, but access. Um, to, to everything you might want uh, professionally and personally. So then tell us about your uh, journey in Gardner, because, I mean, obviously, you know, they are a massive company, and I think that that gave you exposure to a bunch of stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I've, been, I've been very blessed in my career to have a series of mentors. Um, you know, I, I, I hope everybody has that experience in their life. And, and, and you know, I, was, I joined Gardner at 21 years old, um, I, I moved through the sales organization quite quickly. Uh, I had uh, kind of a funny story. We had a, a winner circle when I was 22 years old, which is their rewards trip for sales performance. It was in Phuket, Thailand. And uh, I, I missed the boat out in uh, Phang Nai Bay, Thailand. And I was sitting on a dock thinking, this is pre-cell phone. You know, how are you going to ever get home to America? And, and around the corner came the chairman and CEO of Gartner, Manny Fernandez, who also missed the boat, probably for a better reason than I. And we sat there on the dock together talking about life and family and goals and uh, things of that nature. And he ended up becoming a mentor of mine and and challenged me on a sales quota that year. And I hit his challenge and he promoted me to be his kind of bag man. And, and I had the opportunity for about a year and a half to just work directly with him. And he brought me high enough in the treehouse to kind of see what I wanted to do with my career. And that really shepherded me through that organization. And from there, I got to work with Michael Fleischer, who became the chairman and CEO and, um, you know, who, who's had an incredible career. And Gartner was just amazing for me. It was this, it was like an MBA in international business in vertical industries, uh, everything you might imagine. I just think the world of that organization. 
And and you're mentioning here that it opened up, you know, kind of like uh, gave you more visibility to understand what you wanted to do with your career. So what what do you think opened up by you know having exposure to to this kind of senior you know executives and and also to to perhaps you know like what you were seeing that maybe you were not seeing before. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I'm one of these people that always writes down goals, things I want to accomplish at certain times in my life. And um, one of them, I wanted to own my own business by the time I was 35. And, and and one of the things I was doing for Gartner in my second tour, I went to, I was at Gartner twice. In my second tour, I ran their IBM account, which Gartner's largest account at the time, I think it might still be, uh, was IBM. And I ran it internationally. And I became fascinated with how IBM built their professional services business. And I, I had the opportunity to meet with some of their leaders, this guy named Joe Benaroya back in the day that ran um, EMEA. Um, and I just became absolutely fascinated with how they built IBM Global Services. And I thought, you know, where else could you do that in the enterprise? IBM built this powerhouse around IT. You know, Accenture did it in finance. Hewitt and Aon did it in uh, HR. And I thought, boy, where else could you do that in the enterprise? Uh, and that led me to where I am today in terms of buying things for corporations in a large-scale services, tech-enabled services business. Now, let's talk about entering the venture world. So you joined Scient. I mean, it, 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 sound, it sounds like you were having a blast, you know, in Gardner. I mean, why, why did you leave? You know, it, it's funny. It was a controversial decision at the time. I, I was a young man when I joined Scient. I was, I think I was employee 17 or 18. Um, Scient was founded by one of Gartner's top sales performers, guy, a guy named Eric Greenberg. And, and Eric called me one day into Manhattan. And I'll never forget it. We sat at this uh, 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 Japanese restaurant and he wrote on a Japanese menu, I wish I still had, uh, an offer for me and slid it across the table and said, I need you to come here. I need you to help me sell here. And it, it was an incredible offer. And, you know, I felt at the time Gartner was a little late to the Internet, you know, and, and he was embracing the Internet at Science. And I thought, boy, I can't miss this wave. Uh, it angered some of my friends and mentors at Gartner for sure. But what a ride. Again, it was like my second MBA. I mean, you take a company from zero to eight billion, from zero to twenty five hundred employees back to zero in three and a half years. Man, I learned a ton at that company. Wow, that sounds like a wild ride. But I mean, the company is still around. Yeah, well, Science sold to a company in India. Yeah, now that's another podcast all of itself. We, you know, what took that company down was commit commitment to Class A real estate. You know, in professional services, you hit a rough spot. You can downsize because most of your cost is people, unless you go commit to huge office towers in San Francisco and Manhattan. Uh, but it was a really wild ride, and we built things like eBay and Realtor.com and chasemanhattan.com. It was a really fascinating experience for somebody who was 26 to 29 when I was there. So on that downturn, what, what did you learn? Well, I learned an awful lot about what not to do. You know, again, commitment to class A real estate was a huge mistake. Um, I think we got over uh, uh, we got overconfident in our pipeline conversion. We started forecasting an unusual percentage of our pipeline. I think we uh, ignored uh, the fact that large enterprises were waking up to e-business, and we probably spent too much time on sexy startups and not enough time on large enterprises. We were just eating our own dog food a bit, and and I think we were over promoting. I think there was a lot of challenges in science. We just we didn't see the cliff that was that was coming. I think the one thing we should have done with that market cap was buy physical assets. You know, when you have a you know a couple hundred million in revenue and eight billion in market cap buy stuff that makes money when you see the cliff coming ahead of you. And we didn't do it. 
Now, in your case, at least Gardner took you back. So that was a, that was a good thing. So you go back to Gardner. You stayed there for another three years. And then you turned the page and you uh, left again for the company. That was the immediate, the immediate step in order for you to build your business. And that was Williams Leah. So, um, so tell us, what were you doing there and how did the whole incubation of the business and, and, and how did you go from incubation all the way to, 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 to launch? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Williams Lee was fascinating. So I was, I was, I, I have four children, and I was, I was at Disney World, and and it was my turn to, it was my wife's turn to wait in the teacup line, which was like two hundred yards long, and I was sitting on a park bench waiting for them, and my phone rang, and it was an executive recruiter. If I wasn't on that park bench at that moment, I never would have answered that call, and it was Williams Lee, um, and I went in and and met with them, and and like my story with the the the, the Japanese menu. I had this crazy meeting with the chairman and CEO of Williams Lee, and and he, I mean, he, he just it was an enigma, uh, and and you know, I found it fascinating. He said, "Come help me build this business," and you know, I quit my job at Gartner and went and joined this crazy company that had for hundreds of years been a financial printer uh, in 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 the UK, who decided to be an administrative outsourcer, and they wanted to do procurement outsourcing as it pertained to print and marketing, and I thought. My experience with IBM at Gartner, I really wanted to do procurement or buying things as a business. I didn't really care if I started with marketing. It was a way to test if this worked. And I joined Williams Lee. Um, we, I spent three years there, and I think we did about $75 million in EBITDA in 13 deals from a standing stop with no brand and ended up selling the thing to Deutsche Post WorldNet for 11 times EBITDA less debt. Um, and I thought, boy, that worked. Now, we had phantom equity, which I learned that lesson. I'll never do that again. Uh, phantom equity was a Ponzi scheme, in my opinion. So a lot of guys made a lot of money at Williams Lee. I was still worried about the electric bill. Um, so good for them, but it didn't help me and my family. So I thought, I'm going to go do this way beyond marketing, and let's do a real procurement outsourcing business. Let's go buy things as a business. And that's what kind of led me to to you know do this from scratch. And frankly, if I didn't have phantom equity, and if they paid me out, I might have stayed. And thank God, frankly, they kind of screwed me on the phantom equity. Because What is the phantom equity? There's probably people listening that are wondering, like, what, what is that? Yeah, for anybody listening, never buy the phantom equity game. Um, it was basically a, a, a promissory note uh, that was an EBITDA calculation. And, you know, when they exited the business, you would get a payout based on the EBITDA calculation. Um, but it was, it was written in Captain Crunch, Inc., to date myself. Uh, so they did things like take this, the country of Germany out of the calculation of EBITDA. Uh, so miraculously, the guys that owned the firm made a lot of money and the employees were underwater somehow after they made a lot of money. Um, so the phantom equity didn't pay out. So it ended up just being paper. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, as you said, you know, that this led you to logic source. So, so what was that theme, that process of, uh, of of you really you know like coming up with this i mean obviously it sounds like this this event is what pushed you in that direction but but what happened next yes yeah, so, so my father you know all it was a mentor and friend of mine uh, uh he passed away a few years back you know but he always held me to account and and my dad called me in my 35th year and said hey dave you you, you said you always have these goals and you always hit them uh, you're 35 and you said you're going to start your own business when you're 35 you're running out of you're running out of a year here and I said, fair enough. And I, I had just gone through this phantom equity thing. So I decided to build the business plan for Logic Source. 
I had a friend and mentor, Michael Fleischer, who was the chairman and CEO of Gartner for years. He, he became the vice chairman of Warner Music Group. Um, and I went and saw Michael at Rock Center, 75 Rock Center in New York. And I said, Michael, here's what I'm thinking of building. Um, and he said, what can I do for you? And I said, well, will you be a client? Will you be on the board? And will you be an investor? And he said, I'll do two out of three. I'll be a client and I'll be an, on the board. But I invest through Bain Capital. Um, why don't I introduce you to Bain? And Michael walked me into who's now a, become a lifelong friend, Jeff Schwartz at Bain Capital. Jeff and I had what was scheduled to be a 30-minute meeting. It turned into an evening in Manhattan, a nice dinner. Uh, really enjoyed one another, and he loved the idea. He walked me, he set up a meeting uh, with his partners up in Boston uh, with a couple of my founders and I. Um, I literally printed 17 pages we created a, 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 on PowerPoint that we printed at Kinko's, I think it was on Dartmouth Street in Boston, and we walked into Bain Capital. Uh, my, one of my co-founders had just had ACL surgery. He had a, 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 move, a constant movement machine in the back of my oh, truck God. on the drive up to Boston. We wheeled them in and, and we presented um, and they put us in this holding tank conference room and came in about 20 minutes later and started hugging us and high-fiving us. And they gave, they gave us $8 million to start the business. And I hadn't really told my wife what I was doing yet. So here we were, I was quitting my high paying job. I took about a 60% pay cut. I was seed funded uh, at $500,000 and I got the 8 million. When I closed a software transaction, we wanted to buy a company called Circuit.com in New Jersey to be the tech that enabled our services business. So I got the eight million when I closed that series. When I closed that acquisition, wow! So I basically quit my job for five hundred thousand dollars of seed funding. Wow, unbelievable! Now, Logic Source for the people that are listening to get it. What ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money? So, so the premise when we started the business is still, is still very similar today. So, so when you think about it simply, companies buy a substantial amount of things that, that, that just keep them in business. So if you think about it simply, companies buy things they sell, and they, think they buy things that enable them to sell. So take a client like ours, like Lululemon. Lululemon are brilliant at buying their core product. It's their brand promise, and their product is absolutely spectacular. They are the best in the world at buying those fabrics and those designs. They also buy marketing and store development and maintenance and repair. They buy benefits. They buy IT. They buy distribution logistics. That's not their core competency. So they partner with us to buy the things that enable them to sell, sales, marketing, IT, distribution logistics. When we started the business... Those some companies call that indirect procurement. Some companies call it goods not for resale and healthcare. They typically call it purchase services. Most organizations don't focus on it as much as they focus on their core product. Therefore, they have less resources, less systems, less spend leverage. But it can be thousands of categories at a micro level, and it can be billions of dollars of expenditures. And efficiency in that area drives directly to the bottom line or funds future investment. So when we started the business, we wanted to focus on buying the things that aren't for sale, buying those indirect materials and services for our clients to free up EBITDA, free up investment dollars for our clients. And when we looked into the market, internally in an organization, this was typically underfunded. It was also branded wrong as procurement um, you know, nobody likes to think of procurement getting involved. They tend to, to have a bad brand reputation. Um, they're typically not where high potential employees go back then in 09. 
Um, and when you look externally, all the options were what I'd call advice-based. What I mean by that is all the options were consulting firms. And there's having been a consultant at Gartner, there's two fatal flaws as it pertains to buying things as consultants. Consultants don't actually buy anything. So they're not bringing leverage. They also don't do anything. So they tend to sell very expensive PowerPoint. And, you know, remember that security monitor commercial? You know, there's a robbery, but I'm not a security guard. Right. That's kind of what consultants do. There's a savings, but I don't go get it. So we wanted to create an execution-based firm that not only found where the money was, but brought leverage, brought assets, and actually went and rolled up our sleeves and did the doing to be able to drive meaningful in-year P&L OPEX benefit to our clients. And that's what we set out to do. And I'd tell you today, the market hasn't changed much. There's a couple of new entrants that come in large BPO players, IBM, Accenture, Genpak, GEP. Um, but a lot of them have taken their financial services outsourcing, FP&A in Mumbai, and called it procurement. That's not what clients need. Clients need complex category management in the country they're operating in. They don't need you know, three bids in a cloud of dust in another country somewhere. That's not complex category management. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, the, 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 the beginnings, you know, of Logic Source were quite bumpy, you know, so uh, it was <laughs> not easy. So, so very bumpy. So how bumpy was it? Yeah, wise man once said, if you didn't care so much, you'd be, it'd be fascinating. So, so, so I leave my company uh, uh, for $500,000 of seed funding. I get the $8 million when I close this software transaction. My former company uh, saw ghosts. They thought little old me with a business plan and no employees was going to come right at their multi-billion dollar enterprise. So they hired... I think the number one labor attorney in the country. Um, and they came to the conclusion that Bain Capital is terrified of the newspaper and won't want press. 
So they sued Bain Capital. They sued me. They sued the software company we were trying to buy. They sued my other founders. Um, and what they claimed was because I live in Connecticut and I commuted to Manhattan every day to work for them, and I used a laptop on the train and I crossed the New York state line every day, twice a day, they claimed that I committed interstate computer fraud under RICO. So for all oh, you God. listening, that's the statute that took down the mafia. Yeah. So this is their crazy claim. Uh, and because they say I committed interstate computer fraud, building my business plan while crossing state lines, that under the fruit of the poisonous tree, they owned the company. Um, and, and I got to tell you, it almost worked. Um, and if it weren't for um, the fortitude of our partner at Bain Capital and his amazing partners who said, why would somebody try this hard to stop this business? We must be on to something. Um, who stood their ground and stayed with us through that legal battle, which we won twice. Wow. Um, we wouldn't be here. But we spent the first two years of this business, which is on year 13, in litigation that cost us millions of dollars. Wow. Unbelievable. Now, now this is this is this is insane because I mean, obviously for you, you know, I mean, here you are, you know, first business, I mean uncertainty. You know, I think that this was like your your big, big, you know, exposure to uncertainty as an entrepreneur. What, what, the, what did you learn from who did you need to be in order to deal with whatever was in front of you? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I learned is early stage, you can't let the highs be too high and the lows be too low. I think as Churchill said, when you're going through hell, keep going. You know, and I also think about uh, uh, back in the day for you baseball fans, Terry Francona of Boston Red Sox once talked about Manny Ramirez. And they said, why doesn't Manny ever slump? And he said, slumps are mental and Manny don't think. You know, there's something about just keep going and don't overthink it. And that's what we did. We just put our nose down and kept working. And we, we embraced that theory that this global brand with really, frankly, I don't want to be harsh on Williams Lee, really good, good people, good executives who were trying to protect their business. And at the end of the day, you do what you do. It's just business. It's not personal. But it was, in, in hindsight, flattering. Literally, I left the business. They had thousands of employees. I started this business plan. I had $500,000 of seed funding. And they tried this hard to stop me. And I just embraced that. I'm on to something. Or they wouldn't try this hard. And, yeah. and it became this hardening material or substance that made us kind of resolute. In, in what we set out to do, the, the, the unfortunate mistake they made was by doing it, they made Bain Capital have to give us clients from within their portfolio. Because one of the things we agreed was we wouldn't compete in the open market for one year. So Bain had to give us business from their portfolio. So it ended up being actually quite good for us because we were able to get direct introductions into Bain's portfolio and kind of try out our business model with some friendly companies That's amazing that's amazing and 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 we're talking about bain you know quite a bit here how much capital have you guys raised to date um so well with this recent 180 million dollar deal with ftb capital you know we're probably in the you know in, in equity capital 220 uh you know 225 we've done a lot of debt we've been very successful with venture debt over the years we've done i think three deals with light uh, with lighthouse and hercules we just closed a deal a couple of days ago with hercules capital um commonwealth up in boston um so we've been very successful at venture debt as well um but we've raised you know 
220, 230 in equity capital and, and, you know, probably close to 100 million in debt over the years. And how do you think on a business like yours on equity versus debt? These businesses, when they're when they run right, are very um, successful raising cash. So debt is a very advantageous way for folks like us as as founders and executives to not get diluted. Um, you know, the, the the golden rule is see what the gold makes the rules. So we don't want too much equity capital, you know, requirement because then we get diluted. Um, so effective use of of um, venture debt has been a, a good strategy for us. And for you guys, I mean, you've um, I mean, you've been up and running now since 2009. So I mean, it's it's quite a bit, you know. And that time allows also to to deal with changes with the investors that have invested in your company, you know. So you know, how many times, you know, have you let's say changed the investors, you know, let's say with like Bain and and how what how do you go about that and how do you bring that new investor up to speed and with the same level of excitement to keep going? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, we went through three Bain Capital partners uh, in our time. And and I, I, I think in hindsight, we probably should have gone to uh, a, a mid-tier growth firm much sooner. We we did. We stayed with Bain a really long time. And, and you know, there there was three founders of Bain Capital Ventures, and, and we had two of them um, who worked with us and then ended up leaving the firm. And we had a third partner who was with us for a while as well, that ended up leaving the firm. And, and that does create a level of disruption. Um, I also find uh, a lot of these PE guys, um, don't always want to agree that what their former partner did was right. So they want to change, uh, and, and come up with a new strategy. So it can be a little bit, um, you, you know, can rock the boat a little bit. Um, uh, we also brought in Solomir Capital, uh, who they were wonderful. Uh, as a series B um, along the way as well. But but I think the, the business really needed a change of ownership, which Pegasus Capital brought us about two weeks before the pandemic, by the way, we closed our deal with Pegasus, um, which which took out most of Bain Capital. Um, and, and they just brought a completely fresh perspective. No matter how hard you try, when you go through Rico and you when you start a company from scratch, I tell everybody all the time, we made 110 really stupid decisions. And thank God we made 112 smart ones. So we were net positive when we did the Pegasus deal. But it's hard for that partner that's been with you for a long time to let go of the past and focus on the windshield. And, and when we did that Pegasus Capital deal, there was no baggage. It was all windshield. And it allowed us to look at the business with a fresh set of eyes and really test and challenge decisions we had made years back that were dated. Um, so I think in, in short, Bain was a wonderful partner. They did everything they said they would do. They did it faster than they said they would do it. We just probably, and I think they'd agree, stayed with them too long. We should have gotten another firm involved earlier. And when we did, oxygen poured into the building. Decisions like, for example, we were retail only focused. A new partner came in and said, well, why the heck wouldn't you diversify? You know, And, and it was a decision we had made some years back that a new partner was able to say, well, you know, let's let's slaughter that sacred cow. Let's go do something different. You know, our software business was captive. We didn't sell it out in the market openly. This new private equity firm, Pegasus Capital, came in and said, well, why wouldn't you sell it in the market? And and some of those decisions really catapulted the business forward. And especially helped you, you know, during tough times, you know, later on, because on the pandemic, you know, since you guys had that, uh, you know, uh, focus on retail, 
you know, you lost like 40% of revenue in like two weeks. So I think that that diversity, you know, came, you know, along nicely, you know, during those times. You know, it's interesting. It was, it was unbelievable. And I, I did, I wanted to point this out too. When, when Pegasus and Hank Holland and his team bought the firm, one of the things they noticed was they looked, we track utilization of our employees. So we track every minute of every day um, because that's how we understand the RPMs, if you will, in our engines and how we scale and our unit cost models. And our leadership team spent 45% of their time on internal projects driven by the board. And Pegasus closes the deal. Two weeks later, COVID hits. We lose 40% of our revenue in two weeks. And you know what the board said? We're going to leave you alone and go to three meetings a, week, a year. They're going to be one hour. Take that 45% utilization you were using on board projects for the past board and put it all out in the market. And we trust your decisions. Wow. That created an unbelievable amount of horsepower going out into the market. We lost 40% in two weeks. We finished that year at the exact same revenue in EBITDA that we started that year. So think about it. We went down 40% of our revenue and came right back and finished the year where we started. We made a decision as a leadership team to only fire and furlough as few people as possible and to fund everything through incentive compensation. We as a leadership team all took cuts, et cetera, and bring everybody back as fast as possible. I think we had one employee that didn't come back through that entire exchange because their client went away and we didn't have another job in that market. Um, so, so we ended up managing this thing unbelievably well. And then in the years since, it's just skyrocketed. We diversified off retail. We now have clients like Rite Aid and National Vision and Mars Veterinary Health and uh, um, U.S. Radiology. Um, in our healthcare business, we have clients like Deluxe and, and Western Union in our financial services business. We have clients like Ocean Spray and Titleist and Bountiful Company and McGraw-Hill in our consumer package business. And before all this, all we had was retail. The retail we have, we love, is really healthy, powerful retail like Gap and Lululemon and Tractor Supply and Big Lots and you know businesses like that. So I guess for our listeners out there, raising money is key, but also getting the board you deserve is critical. A hundred percent. So in your case, I mean, imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, David, where the vision of Logic Source is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, I, I, you know, I still have audacious goals. Like I think we can create a category of one in sourcing and procurement. I think we can be the brand that companies look to uh, for efficiencies around what they buy, who they buy it from, how much they pay for it. I think our technology business um, is is barely out of first year and it's growing at a couple hundred percent a year. Um, I think the data business that comes off the back of this could be bigger than the whole thing. And think about it. We have 65 billion of spend running through the firm. We've done very little so far to really monetize that. Um, I think Logic Source can be the brand, like an IBM is an IT or a Hewitt Mayon as an HR. I think we can be the brand in sourcing and procurement. I think we've just got to do a better job getting our name out there. We're kind of the best kept secret right now. We spend very little on marketing. Um, but when CFOs meet us, they say, boy, how did I not know this was an option out there? That's amazing. Now, David, imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to that moment where 
you know, perhaps like the phantom, you know, equity had happened and you were wondering about what, what, what's going to be next. And, and you have the opportunity of sitting down that younger David and you're able to give that younger David one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I lost somewhere along the way, I had a uh, probably unwarranted confidence as a young individual. I grew very quickly at Gartner, rose very quickly at Science and Williams Lee. And somewhere along the way, I let my board take my confidence down. And I started playing the game with trepidation. You know, I, I, I was walking more gently. And it was interesting. We had a meeting. We were flown into London for a private equity firm that was going to buy a company I used to work for. And I, I was kind of brought in as an expert witness, if you will. They were asking what I thought of this business. And that particular private equity firm treated me like I remembered being treated at Gartner and at, at Williams Lee and at Science. And I got on the plane and I thought, I want to be that guy again. And I had let my board in that 45% utilization on internal projects, I, I had let them change who I was. And I just woke up one day and said, no, I'm going to play the game my way. I'm going to hit hard every day. I'm going to say exactly what I think and come what may. And I changed that day. And we ended up saying, let's buy the business back from Bain. They let us do it. We got the buyer. We got the deal done. We operated completely differently with the Pegasus board. Um, I made a decision to go uh, do a deal with FTV uh, exclusively. So we had hired Lazard, uh, but the relationship I have with Brad Bernstein, the managing partner of FTV Capital, I wanted to go exclusive with him. I didn't want to run a process. I didn't want the best deal. I wanted the right deal. And you know, and then what I mean by best is the highest number. And thank God I had a partner in Pegasus Capital that wanted the, the right deal for Logic Source, not necessarily the highest price. And, and, and that controlling my own destiny and picking the partners I wanted to be around the table, operating the business the way I wanted to, listening to my executive team and trusting them instead of micromanaging them, all those things. If I could tell that former me to do it sooner, to trust my team sooner. Uh, to to hit hard at the board and do what I knew was right in my gut sooner, I think we would have gotten here a lot quicker. Wow. Now, for the people that are listening, David, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, probably, uh, you know, just hit me on LinkedIn Messenger. Um, you know, I'm out there uh, publicly. My my, You can hit, hit me directly on email, which is david.panino at logicsource.com. But if you don't remember that, just look me up on LinkedIn and please, uh, shoot me a messenger. I, I'd love to get to know you. And there's a lot of folks out there that are looking to raise capital. And uh, I've got scars and trophies I'd be happy to share with you. <laughs> well, David, you know, it has been an honor to have you on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so, so much for being with us. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I, I would be remiss in not saying my team uh, did all this. You know, my CFO, uh, Nikki Heim, my COO, Joe Seed, my head of customers, Kirk Coaster, my CPO, Michael Braunschweiger, that, that team is who raises that money and builds that confidence and does those deals. I get a lot of credit for it, but maybe I'm, uh, my credit is deserved for hiring that team. Amazing. Thank you, David. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, 
that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.